The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Okay, Philippians chapter 3. Um, in my Bible, at least in my copy, we're turning the page for the first time in several weeks. I'm on page number 250, the very top left-hand corner. If you don't have exactly that Bible, that doesn't help a bit, but that's where I am. Uh, 250, the very top left corner, which could translate to you Philippians chapter 3 and picking up in verse 11. We got down through verse 11, was actually in verse 12 last week when we closed out and so we'll try to pick up there tonight and go as absolutely as far as we can. Uh, this is uh, going to be my last week to teach for quite a while. So there's your notice right there. Um, summer series is, have kicked off in many congregations around this area and around the south. And so I'll be traveling just about every week for a while. So if we can finish chapter 3, which we've got a long way to go considering we started late. But if we can finish chapter 3, I'll be somewhat satisfied and then maybe one day... Uh, can come back to chapter 4 and pick up in that. I mentioned to you many, many times how important it is to watch the verbiage, to watch the verses as they divide out, to watch the phrases, and especially to always continue to keep things in context. And I may have said this a number of times a few weeks ago, when you moved from chapter 1 into chapter 2, you didn't have a great divide right there. There wasn't a real break. As a matter of fact, as I've said I know 10 dozen times from verses 1, chapter 1 and verse 27 on through chapter 2 and about down to at least verse 11, that's one context. And so that page turns, that chapter divide comes in, but it's really not that fitting. It helps us to find our places, obviously, but it's really not as fitting as far as understanding the text itself. However, that is a contrast between what happens at the very last verse, chapter, uh, verse 30 of chapter 2, in chapter 3, there is a pretty strong divide between those two contexts. So chapter 3 and verse 1, we'll read down as far as we've gotten so far. Uh, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, and I write to you the same things to you. For me is indeed not grievous, but for you is safe. Beware of dogs and of evildoers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision... Which, work, which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And of course, he then presents his argument, if and when I could be confident, I am, or could be. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath whereof that he might trust in the flesh, I more. His pedigree comes up, if you will, circumcised, verse 5, chapter 3, the eighth day, out of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, verse 6, persecuting the church, and touching the righteousness, which is of the law blameless. But what things I have to gain to me, those things I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss, of all things, for whom I have suffered loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And I found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that but of the law, 
that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, kind of our next section here. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable even unto his death. And so he says, I want to get to know him. And he knows him as far as having you know, cross paths with him there again on the road to Damascus as far as he has been preaching. Paul has at least for a number of years already. He has access. He's an apostle. He's inspired. He's already written a number of what we would call New Testament books, letters, epistles to different and various congregations and even individuals by this point. So he knows him, but he's talking obviously about an intimate knowledge of him. I want to get to know him in the deepest way that I can. Verse 11, he carries on with that. He says, If by any means I might obtain under the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already obtained, we were already, or either already perfect, but I follow after that, I follow after, if that, I may apprehend that, which is also I am apprehended of Christ. And so that... Paul starts out a section, you're going to see it in verse 12, verse 13. Uh, both of those passages, verse 12 and 13, he's going to continue to come back to the fact that he has not yet attained. He's not already apprehended it. He doesn't have a full grasp on everything. He hasn't been made complete yet, but he knows that that time and that opportunity will come. And I've thrown an error, not literally, but I've written out a reference to remind me to turn back constantly to chapter 1 and look back over into basically verse um, 20, um, let me see here. Basically about verses 27 through 30, because Paul continues to state in that text, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, that he knows that God is going to continue to work. He has worked in him, he will continue to work in him. And so he says here in our text, verse 12 of chapter 3, I haven't already obtained. And I haven't already obtained, I haven't already been made perfect, that is, I'm not complete, but I follow after, if that, I may apprehend that, which I am apprehended of. So that's seemingly confusing language, basically, for Paul to say, look, what got me in the beginning carries me through to the end. The way that I started, the enthusiasm that I had, the ability that I was given as an apostle, he would say, I'm going to keep on with that. I'm going to continue to be made faithful. Now, keep in mind, this is in the context of a book where in chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, he's already been bringing up several different times how he is actually in prison. He's writing the letter from prison. And some of the doubts that even the church had over in Philippi, seemingly, were, can, pertain to the fact that they thought that if Paul was in prison, if he was in jail, if he got locked up, that that was some way going to hinder the gospel. And he said on at least three occasions since that verse, chapter 1 and verse 13, it's not going to slow the gospel down. The gospel itself is going to be continued. It's going to keep going in spite of the place where I am. And Paul himself, verse 12, is going to keep going in spite of the place where he is. So he hasn't apprehended. He hasn't got it all figured out. Maybe it would be even another way we could understand that. How is that possible? Verse 13, he said, Brethren... I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Do you think Paul is narrow-minded? We could say he is. 
he was very focused. And, you know, a lot of times some accusation is brought against us as, as members of the Lord's church is, well, you know, you folks are just, you're just narrow-minded. You just, you see things one way. You don't want to budge. You don't want to twist. You, you don't want to compromise with anybody. Well, I mean, uh, totally willing to compromise with anybody if the Scripture allows for such. You know, if there's liberty, if there's room, if you will, for adjustment for what you might call compromise, fine with that. But at the end of the day, as Paul is saying here concerning himself, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters to us is whether or not we ourselves as individuals will stand inside of heaven's gates. If we will stand in judgment and be found faithful and stand inside of heaven's gates, that is the primary responsibility we have. Now, does that take away from the Great Commission? Does it take away from our uh, willingness to go out and, and to teach others and, and to assist others in finding truth in the gospel, finding truth in the Bible? No, absolutely not, obviously. But at the end of the day, when we stand in front of God at the judgment seat, we will answer for whom? But one man, just ourselves, no one else, will be judged based upon what we've done in our bodies. That is why we were living. Not anything that could have been an afterlife, but what we have done in our bodies, whether they be good or whether they be evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Just as a reference to that. And Paul says, I, I've not gotten to where I want to be. I've not gotten where I need to be. But the one thing I do, verse 13, right in the middle of it, he said, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth to those things which are before, verse 14 we're very familiar with, I press toward the mark, of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So he gives us several instructions here, basically three of them, depending on how you divide that out, or maybe two if you, sub, if you uh, draw the latter phrase of verse 13 into verse 14 completely. But he said the first thing he does and the thing he does primarily is he forgets his past. Is that important? It's, it's always important, actually. And whether that past is a past of, which for us to an extent always is, but a past of sinfulness, a past of being lesser than, than what God expects, a past of being separated from God. And of course, all of us are in that position until we are added to, added to God, added to, to God through obedience, and particularly here uh, through being put into Christ, coming into Christ through baptism and such. But when we look back at our past, we can't think about the, the wrong that we've done. Those things should be in our past, should be behind us, if we have made it available to God to wash those sins away. But in the main context, Paul is not speaking about that. That's, that's an application. That's the way I think about it. That's comfort in that. But Paul, in the primary context of it, backing up across, I've got to turn the page back, but backing up to what he began to say in verses 4 through about verse 9, he says there very cautiously, look, if I, could, if I could claim my past, if I could claim all the good I've done, if I could claim all the good I've, I've had available to me through my heritage, through my lineage, I need to let go of that. And the one thing that Paul had done at this point that many of the people he's addressing here in this letter have not yet done is they've not let go of that past. They've not let go of their heritage. They've not let go of the fact of the way they used to live. Now, I've said this before for illustration. 
it is highly possible, if not likely, that there were some, maybe even many of these individuals here in the church at Philippi, just based on years, that could have easily lived most of their life to that point under the old law. That's just doing some easy math, just thinking things for what they are, assuming that, you know, you use that date of Christ dying around 33 A.D.-ish without the adjustment of the calendar, and then understanding that this letter is being written basically somewhere around 62-ish, you're talking about 20 or 30-some-odd years, give or take. And so there are obviously potentially people there who said, you know what, I live my whole life, the majority of my life under the old law. This is still somewhat new to me. And if you take someone that had maybe just recently, not even at the beginning, that wasn't there on the day of Pentecost, that did not, was not baptized that day, was not added to the church, you take someone anywhere from that point forward who may have even been, you know, they may have became a Christian two weeks ago, time of writing. They, they're going to have to let go of their past. They're going to have to let go of their heritage. And they're going to have to let go of many of the traditions, many of the, the practices that they have participated in all their lives. Now, that shouldn't be the case this many years removed because what should have happened this many years removed uh, is in perfect case scenario is that all that stuff was behind it because everybody quit teaching it. It, it should have been that, the, that the, you know, the temples and the synagogues and the priesthood and all that stuff should have just said, okay, hands up, that's it. Christ died on the cross. He, was, he died, he was buried, he resurrected, he ascended. The church was established there as we, we see it in Acts chapter 2. And so we need to put all that stuff down today and commit ourselves to following the cause of Christ and commit ourselves to living on the law of Christ and put all that behind. But that wasn't true. There were still so many who were making those same practices, those same uh, teachings available and still participating in that. And so Paul says, I've got to put all that behind. I've got to put all my past behind, whether it be positive, whether it be negative, or whatever, because as he said preceding verses, I'm counting all that but lost for Christ. I'm counting all that but dung. And so Paul is encouraging them here to do, the, do that in this order. He says, first off, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, then the next part of that, and reaching forth in those things which are before. I don't know exactly how this illustrates other than I see it illustrated in my life on a regular basis. If you've ever seen me or my wife or anybody interact with my children, there's one thing you'll notice. They're going in two different directions all the time. And so I may have convinced Maya, get beside me, walk with me, we're crossing the street, we're going in that store, we're going in, in this place. She may do that. But Libby's going a different direction and Ella another. And the thing that makes that nearly impossible is even if I'm trying to physically hold their hands, what's going to happen to me? I'm not letting go. What's happening? I, we would call it, I'm, I'm literally being pulled in every direction. And it is impossible. I wouldn't encourage you to try this. Just easy, simple illustration. You get ready to leave tonight, put your car in drive and put it in reverse at the same time. First, it won't go. It won't even get into those gears. But even if it would, it's not going to do both. It's not going to go while it stopped. And Paul says, I've got to put my past 
behind me. Forget those things which are before, but I've also got to reach forth unto those things uh, which are, are behind, reach forth to those things which are before. Now, the, the word and phrase here for reaching forth, it's a long, drawn-out discussion, but it really carries the idea that Paul has reached and he's gotten close. And so he has continued to reach and maybe in some sense he's gotten closer. But the verbiage says he's continuing to reach in the hopes of getting even closer. Now that again, there's a physical position to that, that you know, if you reach for something and you don't quite get it, if that's what you really want, you keep reaching for it. And so the language here says, I have not reached, and previous verse and the one below it, I haven't reached it and got it. I've not attained it. I hadn't apprehended it. I haven't finished it. So I keep reaching. I put it behind. That's in a tense that means I've put it behind. I've shut the door. I've locked it. I've, I've thrown away the key. But I'm going to reach as long as I have to reach. And we're going to keep on reaching. And that connects it directly toward the verse 14 that we're most familiar with. He said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. So the way I divide this out is Paul speaks of his past even though he lives in his present, but he never gives up on his potential. And that's not within himself. Paul using the word apprehended and the fact that he had not. Him using the word completion or perfect and the fact that he had not. The fact that he used the word obtained and stating that he had not proves that he hasn't been living on merit. If merit had done that for him, if his good works and his good will and his good deeds and his good lineage and his good heritage had accomplished that, then there would be no, no reason to continue. But again, he's cut all of that off and he's reaching forth or reaching before him to press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God. He's reaching for a goal. And during the process of reaching for the goal, he expects nothing more of himself than growth. And that's, that's usually the area, at least in my life, that seems to ebb and flow the most. You know, I may say in my mind at least, you know what, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep pressing on. I'm going, to, I'm going to do what this says, Philippians uh, 3 and 14. I'm going to do just what it says. I'm going to keep pressing on, I'm going to keep reaching, I'm going to keep striving for the Lord. I'm going to keep pulling, pulling to get to heaven. And that may be my mindset, but if it's not the way I live the things out and the growth is not present, then that in itself is not present. He says, I press toward the prize or press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of Jesus. Now, if you'll drop down, we're not near it and we're trying to get to it, probably won't, but if you'll drop down to verse 21, look at what he's going to say. This is kind of uh, the, the old rest of the story type of an idea. Verse 21, he said, Who shall change our vile bodies that it may be, may be fashioned unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So when does Paul think he's going to be finished? When does he expect to be finished? We might refer to that in glory. When he gets to heaven, when judgment is complete, 
when he stands before God in worship, that's at the point when he is ready then to say, okay, here we are. I hadn't apprehended, I hadn't obtained, I'm not made perfect, but now we are. How can we prove that? How is that possible? I just think about the context of Ephesians chapter 5 and how that is marriage is the illustration there, but the subject there is actually the church. You find that from the latter verse there, I think it's verse 30 or 31 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. But in the middle of that, as he's going through many things, he says that he may present her unto himself perfect, without spot and without blemish. And that's what Christ desires. And that's what Christ's goal is, and that also must be ours. So Philippians chapter 4 and verse 15, he said, Let us, and the idea there is that, that I'm making the assumption this is what we all desire. He said, Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if, and that's what I've called before in the Greek, the first class conditional, meaning he knows it's not the case yet, meaning since, but if or since in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. And so he's stating there that when I continue to put those things behind, I've done that, I've cut it off, and I continue to reach toward the things of before, and I've set that goal to press toward that mark of the high calling of Christ, then I know it's at that point I can then be made perfect. Again, that's, that's arrival in heaven in the presence of God. And he says, if that's not your mindset, basically change your mind. Verse 16. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already obtained, let us walk by the same rule and let us mind the same thing. So if there be some that are thus minded, like minded, good. If there be some that are otherwise minded, Paul's encouragement to them is, let's get on the same page. Let's walk, King James speak, let's walk by the same rule. I know Lamar is often involved. Coach Stevens obviously was involved for decades and, and probably never let it go in his heart. But in, in coaching, uh, in, in playing sports, kids involved, parents involved, coaches involved, what is the standard in all those sports, no matter what it is that you go by? Go by the rule book. And, and even though there may be argument, there may be discussions, there may be conjecture, there may be ideas about the way a sport, for that example, plays itself out at the end of the day. Everyone's mind should just be, look, let's just look and follow the rules. Now, this is a book that is written later than, in time and date, later than the letter to the Corinthians, but remember, it's inspired by the same author and penned by the same penman, Paul. And Paul starts out in the book of 1 Corinthians, which, depending on how you divide that out, I've always divided it out. There are about 16 major sins that are addressed in the book of 1 Corinthians. About 16. You may find a few more, a few less depending on how you subdivide those. But he starts that entire book out and makes a point. We see it beginning in verse 10 through 13 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 10 to 13. And the first thing he starts with concerns them being unified by what he says by being of the same mind and of the same judgment. 
Because the information he's received concerning the Corinthians is that they are divided and that there is a problem. He said, I received of the household of Chloe that there are divisions among you. But he desires of them, 1 Corinthians 10 to 13, that they all speak the same thing and be of the same mind and the same judgment. Same idea right here, really, because he says, Nevertheless, verse 16, Philippians chapter 3, Nevertheless, whereunto we have already obtained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Now again, in contrast to the context, there are those who are not walking by the same rule he walks. Because they've taken the same rule that he has available in, you know, revealed scripture at that point in time. And the abilities of those still current New Testament prophets, in a sense, such as Paul, the apostles who are bringing the gospel to them, who are delivering the instruction to the church, but they've taken all of that information and either one cast it out and just said, we don't agree, or they may have taken it, but they're trying to apply too much to it. They're trying to add their own insert to it and trying to make it in their own way. And so he says, verse 17, brethren... Be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have walked, and have us for an example. I kept reading this this afternoon, this morning, and, and reviewing again this afternoon, just going back over it in my mind. And I kept pausing and getting hung up on verse 17 because I kept asking myself, first I know that there are several other occasions 1 Corinthians 11, 1 is one of them where Paul makes a very similar statement where he says there literally, follow me as I follow Christ. But what I kept asking myself at this point here, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17 is, could I have penned that word, those words? Aspired to do it, but could I or would I or maybe better can I say to someone, look, just, just get behind me. I'm following Christ. I'm pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God. Why? Because I've put all of my past behind me. And I'm doing nothing now but reaching forward to what's before me. And I'm following Christ. And as long as you see me following Christ, then you walk right along beside me. You get right in and see me as an example of what it is to be. That is difficult to determine and even more difficult at least should be to proclaim but it is possible because it's made possible by the same rule and having the mind of the same thing remember he's already said in this book let your mind I'm looking back across the page to chapter 2 let your mind be as Christ Jesus let you be like-minded, chapter 2 and verse 2. Fulfill you my joy and be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And we do that by following Christ. So chapter 3 and verse 17. Walk like I walk. Walk like others walk, so long as they are followers together. Verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you, and often now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, for time's sake, we won't get to go, uh, go here. This is one of those rare occasions I would flip or flop. But if you'll think about what has already occurred in the book and that there are people who are trying to bring and require things upon these brethren that are not long, no longer required under the law. 
the Judaizing teachers, particularly as he named out the practice of circumcision. There again, people still hang on to that. According to what Paul wrote by example, if you go back and read, and I would encourage you to continue to do this, but go back and read something like Romans chapter 14 and, and how the, he used the example there of people, you know, viewing meats, and those are probably meats sold in the marketplace, and viewing meats and saying, okay, look, we're not supposed to eat those meats. Those meats are offered to idols. And somebody else says, I've got no problem eating those meats because those meats that we know are offered to idols are often offered to dead idols that don't even exist. Gods that don't even exist, what difference does it make? In chapter 14, his discussion comes down to saying, look, you do what you have to do to keep yourself pressing toward the mark. And you do that in such a way that you do not become a stumbling block to your brother. Another reference to such, not near the same discussion, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, he speaks loudly about people who are calling on others to do things that are not required of God. Requiring others to do things concerning all sorts of things that are not required of God. And he says, those people that walk in that manner, verse 18, they are but enemies of the cross of Christ. And they wouldn't want to see themselves that way. Verse 19 even, he adds to that, whose end, that is these enemies, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. So they've made their bellies their God. They've made their desires their God. They've made their wants and the way that they want to live their, their God. Their, their Lord over them. And he says their end is going to be that of destruction. And that's why when I outlined this out a few weeks ago and was just going through the different things, you know, Paul's caution, verses 1 to 4, chapter 3. Paul's claim, verses 5 to 7. Of Paul's consideration, verse 8 and 9, Paul's conclusion, 10 through 16. Paul's consummation, the consummation that he talks about, the consuming thing about this chapter comes in here in verses 17 to 21 because he says there are some who don't walk the way that we're talking about. They don't want to walk the way that we are, who are enemies of the cross, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and they mind the earthly things. And then in the contrast here, verse 20. For our conversation, of course we always refer to that and define that as our manner of life, our way of living, is in heaven. From whence also we look, and that word could be translated we long, we desire, we look for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I didn't necessarily search this out. There's electronic means to do it pretty easily. But from what I can recall, and that's my disclaimer, it's my mind, uh, heart transplant, two-time stroke victim, if you want to call it that, that's my mind. I don't recall another time in Scripture anywhere where so much information about who Jesus was is packed into this, this little phrase. Because there's many times when Paul particularly refers to Jesus as something like, as, as part of this, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Master, the Anointed One. Jesus, our salvation. 
and Christ our Messiah. There's many times, there are many times he does that. Many times that other individuals like, like Peter, when Jesus asked, you know, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That discussion, Peter understood at that point, at least had revelation given to him, according to what Jesus said, who he was. But no other place will you find him being called these things in order as this. He's our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, the context proves the reasoning behind that in that there were many who thought their Savior was self, who thought their Savior was heritage, who thought their Savior was their practices. They have contextually made their God their belly. They have been become enemies of the cross. They mind earthly things instead of heavenly things. When he's saying up above that, I'm looking toward heaven. I'm looking toward the high calling, verse 14, of God in Christ. And our conversation, verse 20, is in heaven because we look for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21 we read a moment ago, who shall change our vile bodies that we may be fashioned in the likeness of his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things. Now for reference to that, you can put down 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, which talks about us being changed but not really understanding what that change is, how that change takes place. And so he says, we shall, He shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His, that's Jesus' glorious body, because He subdues all things unto Himself. Now Paul writes this letter, the Philippian letter, in and around the same time that he wrote the, the letter to the Colossians, that he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, and also the letter to Philemon. And in the Ephesian letter, chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, he spoke there specifically about the church, how the church is his body, and he said that Christ would put all things under his feet. And here he makes a similar statement, speaking of Christ, that he will subdue all things, that is, he'll put all things under his authority. Any, any one of us could remember all the children can do the same probably at some point could remember the account of David and Goliath and remember that how in, in that account as it comes down right after David slays Goliath he, Goliath's on the ground he's, he's dead uh, David goes up and, and takes off his head now whether that was just assurance that he was dead obviously that would assure such or whether that was just as it seems that that became his proof and his prize, something that the Israelites would have carried around for a while and, you know, to prove that we took the Philistine nation down because we took uh, their, their hero, we took their leader. In the time, and I mean by that the days of David, in the time when that account occurred, it was often the case that as someone would be slain in battle, whoever slain that individual would often, just in a symbolic way, if not a physical way, would oftentimes step over them and place their foot upon their head or their neck just, just, in, a, just in a moment's time just to show that they had taken authority over. 
to show that they had been, you know, supreme in the battle, that they had won the battle. And that's somewhat of a picture as to what I just mentioned, Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, and somewhat of a picture of this. And so to summarize verse 21, basically he says there's going to come a day when we're going to be more like Christ than we've ever been. When in, in some form our vile bodies will be changed, and at that point we'll have the ultimate and altogether truth that he has subdued all things unto himself. So I think the classes are about to come back. Again, uh, chapter 4 still remains, so hopefully you'll be looking at that and studying that. I know you will. and Many, many of you have read it many, many times, but continue to study that. And uh, keep in mind of chapter 4 at least, the primary verse that we recognize is always verse 13, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. But the understanding of that verse is always going to be context. And so where do you look? You basically start right there in verse 13 and put it in reverse and you back through the book and see why he would say that, uh, why that's even made possible. And so that's just the key to helping to get a grasp on what that is. I appreciate your time and your attention for what tonight, I guess, would have been 20 weeks in this study. So maybe that's too long or too short, but I've enjoyed it, so thank you.